Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Today is episode 204. We have a living legend, and I mean that in every sense of the word, on with us this week. Boris frickin' said. Yes, I said that right. Said. Uh, he is coming back to NASCAR in the Xfinity Series this weekend. He's going to pilot the HendrickCars.com Chevrolet for Rick Hendrick and Hendrick Motorsports in the Xfinity Series at the Roval. So I figured it'd be a good time to get him on and chit-chat about that opportunity, why it means so much to him, and if this could really be the last time that he races in NASCAR. I guess we'll have to ask him, so stay tuned for that. We're also going to chit-chat a bit about Talladega and preview the Roval as well as the 2024 schedule that has now come out. But before we do any of that, we need to go in our Wayback segment and pay homage to one of the great names in racing and one of the most successful Americans to be a race car driver back in the day. Papa Siegel, take it away. Thank you, Duke, and welcome everyone to episode 204. As Davey just mentioned, his guest on the pod this week is legendary road course legend Boris said. Boris is known to his legions of said heads as one of the first of the modern day road course ringers. So this week, our Wayback Lens focuses on one of the first ever road course ringers and one of the greatest American racers ever. Mark Donahue brought his skills as a professional mechanical engineer to his innate ability to drive a car fast. Think of a back-in-the-day Ryan Newman. Donahue understood aerodynamics, ground effects, and the intricacies of mechanical car setup in ways that his competitors didn't. Some said it gave him an unfair advantage, but Donahue knew how to drive a car fast, and Roger Penske knew how to give him fast cars to drive. Donahue won the SCCA Can-Am title in 1973. Before then, he won the 24 Hours of Daytona in 1969 and the Indy 500 in 1972. That win was especially stinging for years truly, since he deprived my fave, Al Unser, from becoming a three-in-a-row winner of the great race. Big Al won the 1970 and 71 Indy 500s and finished second to Donahue in 1972. Donahue won the 1973 Winston Western 500 at Riverside, one of the first examples of a road course ringer delivering the goods in a NASCAR race. He also raced in Formula One and Trans Am, among other series. Not sure about his creds? How about this? Donahue won the initial running of the International Race of Champions in 1973 and 1974, besting the likes of Richard Petty, A.J. Foyt, Emerson Fittipaldi, 
Bobby Allison, David Pearson, Peter Revson, Bobby Unser, and Gordon Johncock. Satisfied? Like so many other greats of his time, Mark Donahue's story had a tragic ending. Midway through the 1975 F1 season, he was practicing for the Austrian Grand Prix when his March 751 suffered a tire failure, sending Donahue into the catch fence at the fastest corner of the track. A track marshal was killed in the incident from flying debris, but Donahue seemed okay after walking away. However, he soon complained of a headache, which worsened. After checking into the hospital the following day, he slipped into a coma and died of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was only 38 years old. Mark Donahue was inducted, among others, into the SCCA Hall of Fame, the Motorsports Hall of Fame of America, and the International Motorsports Hall of Fame. That's all for this week. Back to you, Duve. And by the way, did you ask Boris if he and Greg Biffle will be trading Christmas cards this year? Thank you, Dad. As a matter of fact, I did. So uh, you'll have to just wait and uh, stay tuned in for that answer. So quickly on Mark Donahue, I knew a lot of those things. I didn't know that he unfortunately passed away because of those injuries and as early as he did. But I did know that he was one real damn good race car driver. And I love that paint scheme. Might be the Matador. Uh, I might be showing my age here. I'm not sure if that was his car or not. But I think Joey Logano paid homage to it in the Southern 500 a couple years ago. The paint schemes that Mark Donahue had with Team Penske were pretty iconic. So I think that that is one of the living legacies that he has, as well as his results, obviously, on the racetrack. So thank you, Papa Siegel, for that week's Wayback segment. And good question that you had for Boris, but I was one step ahead of you. I asked him, so stay tuned for that. So let's get to that interview, but we got to start off this episode as we always do, and that, of course, is with a good old-fashioned do-it-with-me party, people. So let's throw it over indeed to that chat with Boris Said of Hendrick Motorsports this weekend. He is low-key, and I say low-key, high-key, one of the most interesting men in the world of NASCAR and motorsports. Uh, he has been quite literally all over the world, won in all sorts of different vehicles. Uh, his story about how he got started in racing is kind of an accident, honestly. And it's just a really, really cool guy that I really am happy we got on the podcast. He's one of those guys that's kind of been elusive. Like, I've always wanted to talk to him, but he's not that easy to get a hold of. And I feel like this is one of those times where there's no time like the present, right? He's going to be in the race car this weekend, potentially for the last time. We'll, we'll give you some more information on that. And I'm really glad that he was able to carve out some time from his schedule. And Hendrick was able to make him available to chit-chat with me about the opportunity. His career, yes, Greg Biffle, we did talk about that, and so much more. So, without further ado, here's my chat with the OG said head, Boris said. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today, honestly, I will say, a living legend. And for this weekend, driver of the 17 HendrickCars.com Chevrolet for Hendrick Motorsports at the Roval in the Xfinity Series, Boris said. No cancellations here, my friend. Good morning. How are you? Good. How you doing? I'm doing great. I, uh, I'm really excited to chat with you about this specific opportunity because 
I was reading a story that you did or that you were quoted in earlier this week on Racer saying that this is probably one of, if not the best opportunity you have ever had in your entire NASCAR career. And now it's race week. So it's finally coming down to it. What are the feelings like for you heading into this weekend? I mean, it's just kind of unbelievable, really. You know, I've been racing for 37 years and I retired full time, you know, four or five years ago. But uh, Rick and I have been partners in a couple car dealerships for 13 years. And, you know, not only is your partner, he's a really close friend and, and somebody that I rely on a lot. I mean, I somebody would have told me 20 years ago, I'd be talking to Rick Hendrick every every week. I'd told him they were crazy. And he's just he's just been a really close mentor and friend and uh, in the car business. And, you know, we always talk racing and, you know, my whole career, I. I've never even dreamed of what it would be like in a Hendrick cars.com car. Um, but this Hendrick cars.com Chevrolet Camaro, when I got to experience Hendrick racing the other day, when I went for a seat fitting on Monday, I mean, that's like for a race car driver, it's like walking into Disneyland as a kid for the first time. It, the place is just unbelievable. And, and I started thinking like, man, I never had a chance all those years driving racing against stuff like this, but you know, the team, you know, Greg Ives, you know, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, there's not, I don't think there's ever been a 61 year old that got a ride like this. And, uh, and I thought they were going to kind of take it as a joke in, in a way, because in a way it is a little bit of a joke with Rick, you know, he's given me an early Christmas present. Um, but, but uh, you know, they were real serious and treating me with so much respect. I mean, and it's just, uh, it's just an honor really. I mean, you know, normally when you see guys like Chase Elliott and Kyle Larson driving that car, I mean, I, I think Kyle Larson's probably one of the best all-around drivers in the world right now. So those are big shoes to fill, but uh, I'm, I'm really, really excited to get out there. Did you think it was a joke at first? Like, did you actually think he was pulling your leg? Well, we were actually on the phone talking about something else, and I was kind of giving him a little bit of a crap. You know, I was, I get, I get kind of mad at him sometimes, and, uh, and he kind of said, well, you like Christmas? He goes, I'm going to give you an early Christmas present. I'm like, all right, I love Christmas. Who doesn't love Christmas? I love the song. I love the songs. I love the movies. I love everything about it. Sure. And uh, he goes, how about you just drive my car? And I thought, so you kidding me? You're going to let me drive the HendrickCars.com Chevrolet Camaro? He goes, yep. And uh, so it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty cool deal for me to do that. And at 61, you know, I don't, there's probably a reason why 61 year olds aren't out driving NASCAR, but you know, for me, the view from the inside is still the same. I'm going to go out there and I understand how tough the hill is to climb, but I, I've never been in a car this good. And, you know, I have 10,000, you know, Hendrick automotive, you know, teammates, hopefully, you know, pulling for me and maybe that'll give me a little extra luck. And uh, you know, it's just, it's just really cool to go out and represent, you know, HendrickCars.com. Well, like you said, you're no spring chicken, but when you're behind the wheel, you wouldn't know that, right? I mean, you're 61, but you're still getting it done. You ran a cup race. I think it was last year for MBM Motorsports. You've run trucks, Xfinity Cup your whole career, and you're still keeping busy behind the wheel nowadays. I know you're helping your son, Boris Jr., get up to speed. I guess no pun intended on the Trans Am side of things, and he's doing really well. I think you ran a race with him somewhat recently, so... For the fans that haven't really been following your career super closely since you retired from full-time racing, what have you been up to the last five or ten years or so, and and what have you done that keeps you busy behind the wheel? Well, I mean, I've been really working on my car dealerships with Rick Kendrick. I mean, that's my number one focus. I have 200 teammates here, you know, as long as the other 10,000 that Rick has. And, you know, together we all, you know, run the business, you know, all those 100 dealerships, 
you know, I have two of them, but we're, you know, we run it as one as a big team, just like a race team. So it's really been interesting. And I've learned a lot over the last 13 years doing that with Rick. Um, but, you know, I still love driving, you know, so every once in a while, you know, I'll go out and drive the SCCA Trans Am series. But, you know, last year, uh, Doug Peterson from three dimensional services gave my son an unbelievable opportunity to race in the Trans Am TA2 series. So, Getting to do that with my son and going around the country and racing with him has just been, you know, a blessing. It's been, we, we have such a good time doing it. And uh, I've, I've never been nervous racing, but when you watch your kid, I'm, I'm a bass, I'm a nervous wreck. It's just so hard, you know, not, not so much that he could get hurt. It's just the, I know all the things I've screwed up every which way a driver can screw up. So, you know, all those things, you know, getting in an accident or getting a flat tire, running into somebody and ruining your day. And I get nervous about that kind of stuff. So Saturday is going to be tough for me because while we're racing, he's going to be qualifying up in um, BIR, Virginia. And uh, I'll, I'll definitely be hopefully uh, getting some reports in the radio on the car during the race. But, but so, you know, I've been doing a lot of that and I, I still get to drive TA one and I, I, I love driving. I mean, I've, you know, racing has been so good to me over the last 37 years. I mean, you know, as far as financially and, you know, the race wins, that's one thing, but, you know, for me, it's really the people you meet along the way, you know, the Dale juniors, the Chase Elliott's, you know, Rick Hendricks, all, all those people you meet and they become, you know, lifelong friends. And, and that's been the most important thing to me. And I just love the sport. I love doing it and getting to do this at my age in a car this good. I, I feel sorry for everyone at Hendrick Motorsports, but uh, I'm going to do the best I can and, and uh, I'm going to have fun no matter what. I want to stick on your son for a second because there's a lot of parents out there, brothers even, that get so much more nervous watching them race than they do themselves. How do the nerves for you manifest themselves? Do they manifest themselves verbally? Do you get on the radio and try to coach them through it? How does that work for you? Well, I, I, I guess I'm more of a poker player. I try not to let anyone see it, especially my son. But I never realized what I put my wife and mom through, you know, all those years getting hurt and racing and crashing and, you know, the highs and lows. And and the first time he went on the track, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And and I am awful to be around while he's racing. I mean, it's the best time at the races doing everything. But when he's on the track inside, I'm just a nervous wreck. I mean, I would trade anything for him to, you know, have a good day and to watch it is just it's tough man. it is really tough. I can imagine. I can imagine. So we talked about your time, 37 or so years, give or take, in the sport of racing and NASCAR. You spent a lot of time in there, obviously. You go all the way back to, I believe, 1995 was when you kind of made your first official or unofficial NASCAR National Series start. How have you seen the sport of NASCAR specifically change over the course of all that time from the road course perspective, but also just in general, it's gone through a lot of different iterations in that time. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, everyone has their opinions on what's NASCAR doing, right? What's NASCAR doing wrong? I mean, the one thing me personally that I love is they've added a lot more road course races, you know, back when I did it, there was two road course races a year and, you know, they had the road course ringers, which I think is kind of extinct now, which, you know, Ron Fellows and myself were kind of those, those two guys. And we were literally come off the couch, you know, two races a year and try to get up to speed racing against the best guys in the world. And, and that was really tough back then. Um, and back then, you know, you got two hours of practice on the first day and another hour of practice on the, on, on the second day. And then you raced it's a lot harder now for a new guy or even an old guy like me. I mean, I've raced on every track all over the world, but I've never raced the Charlotte Roval. So I come in here and, you know, you get 
20 or 30 minutes of practice, hopefully everything's right. And then you, you go right into the show. So that, that's going to be the toughest thing for me. But as far as the sport over the years, I mean, I just, I've been a fan since I first saw it and used to watch, you know, Dale senior at Daytona and just the way he drove. I mean, it just made me want to be a racer, you know, watching those guys. And I think the sport has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And I still, I love it as much today as I did back then for sure. Like you said, it, it's gone from a place of two road courses a year where the, the normal guys kind of just threw them away. And guys like you, Ron Fellow, Scott Pruitt kind of comes to mind too. You guys were exactly that, ringers. And you could come in there and really be competitive. Now it's morphed into five, six, maybe even seven when you look at the Xfinity Series road course races a year. And everybody is so good on all these racetracks, road courses included, in a way, do you kind of feel like you were maybe ahead of the curve or maybe like 10, 15 years early? Because I feel like if you're doing it right now, you'd be right ahead of the game. Uh, I mean, yeah, if, if I was in my prime, like I was in the early 2000s and they had six road courses, I would have been in heaven. It would have been like Christmas for me. I mean, there would have been a lot more opportunity. But in saying that, you know, I was around when there was only two road course races a year. And in the beginning, you know, when I did my first one in 98, they didn't really take it serious. They were like, oh, we can throw away two races. It doesn't really exactly. matter. You know, they weren't even building special cars. There was only a few guys out there, that, you know, the Rusty Wallace, the Ricky Wood, the Mark Martin that would really, you know, get into it. And as I saw over the years, I started training people and working with people and just not really teaching them how to drive, just showing them the differences between road racing and oval racing. And they started to take it more serious. And and they started building cars and they started testing and really working at it. And, and the way the point system worked, you couldn't give up those points anymore. So, you know, I, I've always thought that the NASCAR drivers are some of the best drivers in the world. And for the simple fact, they race more miles than any other race car driver in the world. And once you showed them the differences between, you know, road course and oval racing, they picked it up like a duck to water. And they're some of the best racers in the world. So I think it's just progressed over the years, the road racing part of it, where they're they're really good. I mean, yeah, you, you have a guy like Shane Van Gisberg that comes in on a street course because that was their first street course and he dusted them. But when he went to Indy, it was a different story. I mean, the you know, the cream rises to the top and 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 that's why they're some of the best drivers in the world. What'd you make of SVG doing what he did at Chicago? I think a lot of people in the industry were a little bit blown away, and a lot of people that were down in Australia were the complete opposite. They weren't really that surprised. Where do you stand? Well, I I was instrumental in getting him that ride. You know, I met him when I went down there and did V8 Supercar in the early 2000s. And he called me up and said, hey, can you get me and Justin Marks deal? So, you know, I know Justin Marks. We were teammates at BMW, you know, 100 years ago when he was a kid. And uh, I called him up and I said, Justin, you know, I know you're doing the deal. You know, you're putting Kimi Räikkönen, but I, I got a guy that you should look at. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, I don't know, we're kind of set. I go, Justin, this guy could win the race. I'm telling you, this is one of the best drivers I've ever seen on a road course. He could win the race. He goes, oh, yeah, maybe I'll give him a call. And so he didn't call. And I had I had Shane give him a call. And they put a deal together. And then Justin was like, I remember right after they did a little test, he goes, you're not kidding. That guy's the real deal. It's going to be really exciting for the sport having him in there, I think. No question. And he's he's got a great accent, so we can just listen to him talk all day, every day. Exactly. Um, I'm curious what you think about the future of road course racing as it pertains to stock cars and NASCAR specifically, because we know that specialization still exists, right? We still have their different drivers that specialize in short tracks or road courses, even super speedways. 
But the days of the ringers, they're gone. The days of two road course races a year, they're gone. What do you think the future looks like as it pertains to stock car racing and road course racing? Well, I mean, it's always you had to be very versatile. You know, they had to be good on a short track, on a super speedway. And then, you know, the bulk of their schedule is a mile and a half. And now they're just adding another, you know, part to that where you got to be good on the road courses because that's six races a year. I'm not sure how many next year, but, you know, that's a big part of it where you got to be good. And over the last few years, you've seen the elevation in their road course game. I mean, there there's a lot of really good road course racers in NASCAR now. You know, it's hard to pick a winner. Where back in the old days, you were like, yeah, it's going to be Ricky Rudd or Mark Martin or Rusty Wallace. You know, it was kind of easy to pick. And now I don't think you can really pick a winner. Your resume speaks for itself in NASCAR and out of NASCAR. Just to name a couple. Rolex 24 check. Sebring 12 hours check. 24 hours of Nuremberg ring check. You've raced in the Daytona 500. You've won in the NASCAR, what's now the Xfinity Series. What specifically stands out to you of your accomplishments over the years being in a race car? I mean, I guess, you know, just, I was always trying to race the next fastest car, the fastest car. And and when I got into NASCAR in 1998, when I subbed for Jimmy Spencer and got to drive the Winston car for Travis Carter, I thought it's never going to get better than this. I mean, I, it was an unbelievable experience to be in the nation's top level of racing. So, you know, I, I can look back at a lot of things. I mean, winning Nürburgring for me was very special just because I feel like I'm a patriot. I love our country. And, you know, to be the first American to win on a track is probably one of the hardest races I've ever been a part of. It's a 24-hour race on a track that was built in the 30s. You know, it was Hitler's big track. You know, there's 180 turns. They start 230 cars. It's right in where the Ardennes Forest is, where the Battle of Bulge took place. So to win on that track was was one of the most special things ever. But also, you know, the one year in 2006 when I got the pole at the Pepsi 400 and was leading near the end and, and Tony Stewart snookered me, but finished fourth. I mean, for me, that was like, you know, from a kid that used to drive his race car to the track and put duct tape numbers on it, that was an unbelievable experience. And, and I've had a lot of a lot of days like that over the years. It's hard to remember now, but I've just – the sport's been so good to me and I love it. And now to finally get an opportunity, you know, with uh, HendrickCars.com and the Chevrolet Camaro and to go into Hendrick Motorsports and see how they run their operation from the inside and be a part of it and, and work with Greg Ives. It's just, it's just like part of me says, why couldn't this have happened 20 years ago? But right. the rest of me is like, this is like the best Christmas present I ever got. So thanks Rick. Yeah. It's just no an like unbelievable experience. Christmas in October. Who needs Halloween when you got an early Christmas, right? Exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned that year at Daytona, the Pepsi 400. Won the pole. You finished top five, but I even remember back then. I think I was like eight years old, but I remember rooting for you. I thought you had that one. You brought it up. I didn't want to bring up a bad memory, but is that one that sticks out in the craw for you and say, man, that one, I really thought we had it so close. Well, no, because I thought I did everything right at the end. You know, I, I still remember it like the back of my head, you know, like, like it was yesterday. But there was a few road course races where I thought I could have won. And we either, you know, one time we blew a motor at the end when we were looked like we were in a position to win at Watkins Glen. One time, Robbie Gordon turned me around on the back straightaway and he went 2003. on. 2003. Know? Remember that so, one. You know, there's a few that got away there that really that eat at me. But that Daytona race, I, I did everything right and just, 
you know, I wasn't the fastest that day. So I finished fourth, but, but for me, that felt like a win. I remember when Tony Stewart was doing donuts in the grass, I almost went out there and did some too, but that would have looked pretty ridiculous, but that's how I felt inside that day. Yeah. I think Tony would have let you do it. You guys are friendly. I think that'd be fine. Yeah. No, he's a good guy. So 2010, that was the year that you got that win in what was then the nationwide series in Montreal. You had that incredible duel that still lives on today with Max Pappas I know that you said, right, the Nuremberg ring was one of the, the biggest accomplishments for you this weekend, honestly, just getting this opportunity. It goes up there, too. What about 2010 Montreal? Where does that win and that race rank for you in terms of the things you've been able to accomplish? I mean, every win is something that's unbelievable and you don't forget. And that year, I mean, I remember that was a, a car that Jack Roush lent me. And, uh, you know, Robbie Benton, his team was, you know, very, you know, underfunded, very – you know, going up against the big guys and he puts together such a great effort back then. And, and, uh, so to come away with that win was, was, you know, it was an awesome day. I mean, that was definitely up there too, for sure. What about that track? I know that there's been some rumblings about NASCAR, maybe going there next year. Sounds like that, unfortunately is not going to happen, but it seems like that track in general is one of the most raciest tracks, especially for stock cars that you get. I, I'm sure you like going around that place. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's got so much history there with Formula One and it puts on great racing. And I think with the new cars, I think it'll put on even a better race because they're more of a road racing car than the old ones. And it was really tough on the brakes. Even for Formula One cars, it's tough on their brakes. So stock cars, the older stock cars, it would have been a little rough. But I think these new ones now with the big wheels and the big brakes, they would put on an unbelievable race. And I remember how crowded and how the fans, they just love the racing. So, you know, when you look at uh, this year when Hendrick brought the stock car to Lamar, I mean, that was such a different vehicle and it sounded like a monster around there compared to all the other cars and the fans loved it. I think the same thing would happen to Montreal. You know, they're, they're more used to formula one and sports cars. So to hear those big BH rumbling around that street course, you know, echoing off the walls would be an amazing thing. So I, I hope NASCAR goes there someday. Talking about garage 56, Greg Ives, who's your crew chief for the weekend. He was very instrumental and, in- making that effort come to reality. What about you? Did you have any part in that? Did you want to take part in that? Because I feel like that's something that's kind of right up your alley. Well, that was one of the things I was calling and bugging Rick about until he got sick of me calling. You know, I, I definitely <laughs> wanted to do that. But, you know, Chevrolet picked their own drivers, and, you know, they had three legends racing. It was a, it was an unbelievable effort. I mean, for me, the biggest thing that sticks out is when they won the pit stop competition. You know, they beat all those cars that have air jacks, and they just – did it NASCAR style and, and they just smoked them. So I think that was like a big win and a big feather in the cap for American racing right there when they did that. And everyone expected them to go there as a joke and, you know, be a last place car just running around in the way. And, you know, they were the fastest GT car there. So it was, it was really, I thought that was a big win for NASCAR and America and for sure Hendrick Motorsports. I think you should keep bugging Rick. And if they do do it again next year, you can, you can have the American angle, right? I'm an American driver. I'm a HendrickCars.com guy through and through. Let's make it happen. Garage 56 with Boris said. I'm on board. <laughs> exactly. That'd be fun. I don't think there's anybody in the Hendrick organization that bugs Rick as much as I do. Sometimes I'm almost borderline <laughs> annoying because I have so many stupid questions I'm always asking him. But uh, but this weekend, you know, to get to represent, you know, all our teammates at, you know, um, HendrickCars.com and the Chevrolet Camaro, I just hope 
I hope that if anyone's out there and they want a car, they got to go to HendrickCars.com because for personal and professional service, there's no better place to go. No better place. I guarantee you that. And uh, it's going to be it's going to be a really fun weekend. I'll co-sign that. Uh, I want to get back to the HendrickCars.com stuff in Charlotte, but a few fun things I wanted to hit on with you first. I got to say, you're making me extremely jealous because for 61 years old, your hair is immaculate and it always <laughs> has been and it always will be. Said heads, all the rage back in like the late 2000s, 2010s. I loved them personally when I was a kid growing up watching the sport. What did you think of them? The fan base that you had and them going around the racetrack wearing those wigs. It was awesome. It, you know, I'll tell you honestly, at first I was, it was a little creepy. You know, I, I would look at Jeff Gordon and, and, and Dale Jr. They'd have all these girls yelling at him and stuff. And I had these 40-year-old guys in wigs that would be <laughs> chanting my name. And it seemed a little weird. And then, you know, I started watching them and thinking about it and meeting them. And they were just a bunch of guys that going to the races having fun. And I started thinking about it. You know, if I wasn't racing, I would be doing the same thing. Not for me, though. I would be probably be cheering for Dale Jr. or Jeff Gordon. But it was it, it was, I mean, it just, it felt good. I mean, you know, when people, when people are cheering for you and liking for you, I mean, it, 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 it feels good. I love those set heads. I was going to say, did you get one, but you didn't need one because you wore these. <laughs> no, I've had this rat's <laughs> nest my whole life. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I would not be doing my job if I did not ask this next question. And I say it with a little bit of jest, obviously, but is Greg Biffle still the most unprofessional little scaredy cat you've ever seen in your life? No. So oh, we're actually we're actually good friends again. You know, we we yeah. we went on this off off roading trip last year. And we had a we had a blast, and um, I remember the day that I was at the SEMA show and walking. It's probably two or three years after that happened. And as he's walking by me, I think his girlfriend at the time goes, "That's Boris said." And we looked at each other and we we're just like, and then we just started laughing about it. You know, I mean, he. <laughs> I was really mad that day and he was really mad that day. And racing is really emotional. You know, you're, you're putting your heart and soul into it. And so it's, I remember Mike Kelton told me one time, he goes, think before you stink. And, you know, it's really hard, you know, when something happens on the racetrack and you just get, you know, amped up. I mean, just whatever's in your head comes out. And that day I was really mad at Greg and I would have beat his ass if I could have, but didn't happen. But now, you know, we're friends again. It's all, it's all past. So. Right. You know, I can't help it. You just can't help the way you are emotionally sometimes after a race. I don't blame you. Time heals all wounds, right? And you guys are right. uh, you guys are better for it. Um, a couple more things um, as it pertains to you, your career in general, doing some reading on you. I know that I think it was the Detroit GP in 1985 when you kind of got the bug, so to speak. And I know you grew up in California on the West Coast, but New York City or Stanford, Connecticut, I think those whereabouts are where you kind of were born and grew up a little bit. What made you interested growing up in that part of the country? Because having some family there myself, I know it's not necessarily a racing rich environment up there. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know anything about racing growing up. You know, I, I knew my father raced when, you know, but he was gone when I was six years old. So I didn't really know much about him. Um, but, you know, I, I owned this motorcycle dealership when I was 21 and the guy that helped me get it owned a Ford dealership. And so, you know, he gave me this dealer trip to the, to the Detroit Grand Prix and that was the first car race I ever saw when I was there watching Ayrton Senna and the Black Lotus and the, the noise and everything. I just, I was just like, oh my God. I mean, I never knew that existed. You know, when it was on TV, I wouldn't even watch it. I would just turn the channel. But when I saw it in real life, it was like, I have to do this. It was like an instant addiction. And that's all I thought about after that. And, you know, it, I originally was going to quit, quit my job for a year 
and and then I sold my store and I was going to race for one year and open up a Harley Davidson dealer. And I ended up just racing, you know, for the last 37 years and it changed my life. You know, it was one of those fork in the road where you just go a different direction and everything changes. I guess it's one of those things where it's like you don't know what you don't know, right? Because 21 years old to see your first race and then start a career in it. That is considered not even way late, too late by a lot yeah. of people, but it shows you that whatever you want to do, you can make it happen, right? Right. That's what my first teacher actually told me. I, I remember at the driving school, I, I, I was an idiot looking back, you know, getting in this car and doing donuts and sliding around thinking, man, this is the craziest thing in the world. And and I asked him after, I go, hey, man, I want to be a professional race car driver. What do I do next? And he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, OSB. And I go, is that a tape, a book? What is that? He goes, no, no, other sports beckon. He goes, trust me, you don't have it. You're too old. You don't have any money and you don't have any talent. And and I was like, well, that's nice. But he was right, actually, at the time. It made me really <laughs> think about it inside. Like, I'm going to have to learn this and take it seriously to get better at it. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I did. And I'm actually glad he gave me that honest advice. Well, now who's laughing now, right? Up yours. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I do see him um, around all the time still. All these 30 years. Oh, really? The same thing. And I still see the same guy around. Wow, yeah. that's pretty cool. Full circle moment. All right. Yeah. Speaking of full circle, let's get back to this weekend. I know that you have limited practice, only that 20-minute session or so, so going to have to get right to it real quick when you load off the truck. What do you think realistic expectations are for you, the 17, and Greg Ives atop the pit box this weekend? Realistically, what do you think you guys can do? You know, it's going to be tough. Out the practice and with everything, I, I actually don't know. You know, I don't know how comfortable I'll feel in the car you know, in the past years, I could tell the car I'm driving, where it usually finishes, yeah, I have a chance for a top 15 or I have a chance for a top 10. Now I'm in the best car I've ever had in my career with this, you know, HendrickCars.com Chevy Camaro. It's never, it's a winning car, winning team, winning everything, but I've never been around the track. So I'm, I guess in my head right now, I'm hoping for a top 10, you know, I would be happy with a top 10 and, um, and just not make any mistakes you know, get to the end, not get caught up in a wreck. But in saying that, I'll read, I'll renegotiate my goals during the race. You know, if I'm in the top 10, then I got to go for a top five. And if for some reason I'm in the top five, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to win the race. So I'll have to adjust and see how realistic each goal will be as the weekend goes on. But right now I'm, I'm, I've never gone to a race and not really, I have no idea how I'm going to do. I mean, I've been out of the game a lot. There's probably a reason why 61-year-olds aren't driving a NASCAR competitively. Um, I would like to be the oldest lead lap finisher or winner of a NASCAR race. That would be something. Um, and, you know, I just, as far as the team, I've never felt like this where I've had the best team, the best car. And uh, so hopefully I don't let them down. I mean, my number one goal this weekend is that all our teammates at, you know, HendrickCars.com, or like, yeah, he did a pretty good job. And 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 for Rick to say, yeah, it's, it was better than a Christmas present. You were very respectable. That That's my number one goal, I hope. And then after that, you know, maybe all the race fans will say, hey, that guy did pretty good. Maybe we'll support HendrickCars.com and go on the website. You and, you know, for me, it's the perfect sponsor. And if you look at it, you know, HendrickCars.com is really more for buying a pre-owned car. And buying a car is, now that I'm in the car business, I got to give you my spiel. You know, Please. it's probably the second biggest purchase you're ever going to make beside your house. You know, they have Kyle Larson, who mostly drives this car. And he's like, he's the young, barely used, you know, low mileage car, you know, the the, the, the best car you could buy, right? The Chevy Corvette. 
But, you know, some people, they want a little cheaper car with a higher mileage, an affordable car, like 100,000 mile car. We sell those too. And that's more like me. I'm a high mileage car and hopefully I have a little good left in me this weekend and, and, and can show the people that, you know, Hendrick.com and, you know, HendrickCars.com is a place to go whenever they think about buying a new automobile or a used one. I'd say you're pretty reliable though. I hope so. We'll see. <laughs> um, I know in that racer.com story with Kelly Crandall, you were kind of quoted as basically saying, if you do well, and if you're happy with the result, this might be it. Like you might not race another NASCAR race again. So you said top 10 the goal. I know that you won't know until the checkered flag flies, obviously, but given how this weekend may go, if this is a good weekend for you, you think that'll be it? Yeah, but, you know, I couldn't say that because if Chase Elliott ever got food poisoning and they needed somebody, there's no <laughs> way I would ever turn down an opportunity like this again. Sure. But in saying that, I'm not going to go out looking for a sponsorship and trying to get a ride and trying to put something together. No, I'm really more interested in just trying to help my son right now, and I'm having a great time doing that. But I still love driving. I mean, it's been my passion for almost 40 years. And if somebody offered me a deal and, and I felt like I do right now that I could do it, I would do it. But, you know, we'll find out this weekend if, you know, what's in my mind translate to, to a finish. Hopefully it will. I hope so too, man. It's uh, It's been great to get to catch up with you a little bit and learn a little bit more about you and your story and hear your spiel, which I love, by the way. Uh, so go get them this weekend. Good luck on the racetrack. Go sell some more cars out there, and I will see you in person this weekend at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Thank you so much for the time, Boris. It was a pleasure. Cool. Thank you. And we are back. Oh, what a guy, man. What a legend. What a cool story, and what a great storyteller as well. I'm telling you, I had like a whole page of notes on my outline that we didn't even get to just because we had to let him go and he was at time, but there's just so much ground to cover when it comes to the career, the life, and the motorsports resume of one Boris said. So I cannot thank him enough. I sound like a race car driver. Can't thank my guys enough. Thank you to Boris for hopping on with me, giving us so much time, and uh, he's a great salesman if you didn't hear and if that was not evident in our chat there. So Go to HendrickCars.com and make sure you buy a car from Boris Said and Rick Hendrick. And thank you to my man, Jarrett Arneson of Hendrick Motorsports for helping coordinate that conversation as well. Always a pleasure working with you, my friend. Time to chit chat for a bit about Talladega Super Speedway. It was an interesting Super Speedway race and it was uh, oh so close for Kevin Harvick and all of his fans all across the globe until it wasn't. Right, So we know that Ryan Blaney obviously wins the race by now by 12 one-thousandths of a second, which, amazingly, out of his three Talladega wins, that is the largest margin of victory because his first two were seven one-thousandths of a second, and this was a whopping 12 one-thousandths of a second. Best Kevin Harvick at the start-finish line by a nose, and then it comes out about an hour after the checkered flag that, well, it wouldn't have really mattered because the four-car failed post-race inspection due to some windshield fasteners not fastened correctly. Uh, Rodney Childers went on Twitter and basically explained his side of the penalty and the story, which I got to say makes some sense. But rules are rules. He knows that better than anybody else, and they unfortunately were DQ'd, and they will not be appealing. But Ryan Blaney, he's on to the round of eight for the second straight year, and that is a big, big deal for him because... Last week at Texas, had a good run going. Pit road speeding a penalty. Womp womp. Good run, gone out the window due to a driver error. And this week, he had a fast car, 
He had some good teamwork with the Fords and with Team Penske. Joey Logano led some laps. Austin Sendrick led some laps. But Ryan Blaney led a lot too, and he led the last one, the most important one. I think we can certainly certifiably say now that Ryan Blaney is in the conversation and in the picture and maybe on the Mount Rushmore of current super speedway racers in the Cup Series. I'd put Brad Keselowski up there. I'd put Danny Hamlin up there. I'd put Ryan Blaney up there. And then the fourth head, you can maybe go with Joey Logano, Bubba Wallace, William Byron maybe. There's a lot that you can put up there in that fourth head, but I think that Blaney has certainly entrenched himself as one of, if not the best super speedway racer right now in the Cup Series. And I don't think that that's hyperbole by any stretch of the imagination. So Blaney's into the next round, as is his sister's boyfriend, William Byron, uh, in the 24 for Henrik Motorsports. Ross Chastain, not a great day. He is minus 10 on the cut line heading into the Charlotte Roval. Kyle Busch, also not a great day, minus 26, give or take a couple with the DQ heading into the Charlotte Roval. And you got Tyler Reddick, who's only two below the cut line, but given that it's a road course and he's really good on these racetracks, better than probably anybody in the field, definitely anybody in the playoff field, I would be feeling pretty solid about my chances of advancing and jumping above that cut line if I'm the 45 car and the 45 driver. Can't say the same for his teammate, Bubba Wallace. Now, he has gotten markedly better at road courses, specifically, I believe, Indianapolis and Watkins Glen, the last two road courses. But still, there's a little bit left there to be desired and to be extracted from the car performance-wise and the driver as well when it comes to Bubba Wallace. Again, nothing against him because he's gotten way better, like way, way better. But that might not be good enough when it comes to advancing into the round of eight. So we'll see what he can do. We'll see if Martin Truex Jr., who still has not finished inside the top 15 in the entire postseason, believe it or not, which is nuts. We'll see if he can get in. He's currently above the cut line right now. Denny Hamlin, he should be good to go. May even clinch a spot after the first stage, depending on how things go. But I will be looking forward to see how everything works out because Talladega was interesting for a lot of reasons, right? You didn't have a big one. You had a lot of teamwork and manufacturers working together for one common goal. The problem with that is that Toyota, they do not have the numbers, right? They have said that for a long, long time. David Wilson has preached the fact that they do not have the quantity, but they have the quality, right? So six cars, it's just not enough when you're dealing with Ford and Chevrolet that have in the late teens, early 20s, right? So that's understandable why they weren't able to get up front when it mattered the most. Denny Hamlin did. He was a lap down after a speeding penalty, and he somehow came back to finish third after the DQ. But bottom line is, Talladega, it was not as calamity-filled and chaos-filled as we thought it might be going in, which means that heading to the Roval, I feel like we may get a lot of that, right? You save some of the chaos and calamity at Talladega, and I think it's going to all unravel at the Roval. Stage breaks will be back for the first time this season. NASCAR made that announcement and that change several weeks ago. They announced it on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio uh, on TMD, by the way. Uh, so stage breaks will be back. Joey Logano, he told us that he's a fan of that. A lot of the other drivers are kind of mixed on it. They would prefer to see things stay the same throughout the entire season. Some just don't want the stages to become permanent at all on the road courses, and some feel like Joey that... Stages do help and do enhance the racing product and the entertainment aspect. So a bit of a mixed bag in terms of people and how they feel on the stages returning 
for the Charlotte Roval. But one thing's for sure, you will have two restarts at a minimum because of those stage breaks, and those restarts are bound to be wild. We know that Tom's heartburn turn, even though it's not sponsored by Tom's anymore, uh, turn one, that left-hander going into the infield section of the road course, that's pretty wild. And uh, I think that we're going to get some similar things this weekend. And I'm excited to be down there on site for the weekend for Sirius XM NASCAR Radio. Also going to be at Legacy Motor Club Fan Day on Friday, helping our live show get up and running. So if you're going to be at the fan show, say hello. If you're going to be at the racetrack, say hello. And if you're not going to be at the racetrack but in the Charlotte area, let me know. And uh, I'll be sure to try to say hey and what's up to you. So looking forward to this weekend. It's going to be a fun weekend of action. Xfinity in action, Cup in action, and all the action can be found on the NBC Family and Networks. And all remaining Cup races will be on the Big Bird. NBC, Sunday, 2 p.m. And we also have the 2024 schedule that has been released for the NASCAR Cup Series. I will say full disclosure, at the time of this recording, uh, I do not know the official schedule, but I know that it is going to be released by the time that this podcast gets released. And I do know a few of the changes on said schedule, just hearing through the grapevine and reading things, no inside information, just information that I've gotten from other people. Iowa Speedway is on the Cup Series schedule for the first time ever. Very excited that we're going to another short track, another new venue, and the Midwest gets another race on the Cup Series, so I'm excited for that. Interesting move that Daytona International Speedway is no longer the regular season finale. I think that everybody could kind of agree that that was a perfect place for that race. It led to so much unpredictability and storylines heading into the weekend and throughout the race itself with the regular season points battle, the points battle to get in on the cut line, and anybody being able to win their way in at the last race of the regular season. That will no longer be the case. Darlington Raceway is going to be the regular season finale, and they will not start the playoffs anymore. Those are a couple of the big changes among other ones. And again, I um, I am, again, full disclosure, recording this before the official schedule comes out. So I don't want to talk about potential changes when they may or may not happen officially. But uh, we could chat about those next week. Just hearing some different things about tracks moving into the playoffs, tracks moving out of the playoffs. I think that some super speedway variety racetracks are doing some moving and shaking around, not named Daytona or Talladega, if you catch my drift there. So bottom line is 2024 schedule. It is here. It is out. Let me know what you think. Tweet me at Davy Center, and I want to hear what you guys think about the schedule. And that will wrap things up for this edition of Victory Lane 2.0, my party people. Appreciate you carving out some time for us and for me this week. I really, really do. And if you like what you heard, and if you haven't already done so, please leave a rating and a review. You can do so on iTunes, the green app, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, SoundCloud, Google Play, anywhere that you consume this form of media. I should be there available for your consumption. And if we're not, please let me know. Drop me a line. I will try to rectify that issue for you. Hope you guys enjoy the Roval this weekend. And the round of 12 will be dwindled down to 8 once the checkered flag flies on Sunday. We'll talk to you next week, party people. Be good.